0: Well, church, as you're having a seats, if you would, grab your Bibles and open, <coughs> excuse me, to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, great job band. Thank y'all. We had something special for y'all this morning. We had a new part of our greeting crew, and we decided to give them leaf blowers. So uh, <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed that this morning. Um, It's sort of just a new thing that we're doing. We think we'll be really, really receptive in our community, just leaf blowers as you walk in. So uh, you can look forward to that week after week here at Providence North. So uh, that was just, yeah. So I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, You can email me about that later. Matthew chapter seven. Hey, real quick, before we jump into the text, I want to let y'all know uh, that I want to be praying for uh, a church that is meeting in their core group phase. Not we we were doing this four and a half years ago. We met in a living room. We began to pray. We began to plan that God would do a new work and a new do a new uh, movement of ministry and expression of the church here in the Woodlands. There's another group. uh, A pastor. His name is Stan, and he is planting Rise Church in Houston in the third ward in a very hard. Place him and his wife and family feel called to. They've moved from Austin and they're they've moved into the Third Ward area and they're gathering now as a core team. They're uh, working on planting this church, our church. Is supporting them for the next year as a church plant as they get going. And so hopefully in the coming months, we're going to be able to meet Stan and get to pray for them. I hope maybe before they launch public services, he may even be able to come preach for us. And you can hear his heart and how we as a church at Providence North can lock arms with Stan and Rise Houston as they seek to reach Jesus in the third ward in Houston, just a few miles from here. So what I want us to do is I want to pray for Rise and I want to pray for Stan uh, as they are meeting right now. in their core team and they're praying that God would draw and bring people to himself through this new church so uh, let's pray for rise right now God we pray For this new church plant, this new work, Lord, thank you for uh, Pastor Stan, that you have called him and that you have equipped him and that you uh, have gifted him in such a way, Lord, for such a time as this to preach and proclaim the good news of the risen Jesus in a hard place. God, I pray that you would use his giftings, that you would draw people into that living room in these coming weeks and months, and Lord, that you would bless their work. Lord, that the the finances would come in that they need to plant this new work of ministry, that you would provide for his family as they have stepped out in faith. And God, I just pray that you would... You'd bless them in many ways, that you would provide for them, that you would bring people, that you would bring resources, that you would bring the right people, that you would bring even future staff along that would lock arms with Stan and Rise, that your name would be magnified in that area. If you would, just take a second and pray for Rise and pray for Pastor Stan as they're meeting now, uh, proclaiming the good news of Jesus there in the third ward. Lord, thank you that you hear our prayers. Be with them as you're here with us now, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, thanks for praying for Stan. I'll be sure to let him know that. We are continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most famous sermon ever preached, Jesus' sermon as he's launching his public ministry, and so we find ourselves in a uh, section of Scripture that is very well known. In fact, I would say that (coughs) this verse we're in is probably... Uh, more well-known by non-Christians than even John 3.16 is known by most Christians. And uh, when I read it, you'll probably know why, or maybe you've heard this, or maybe uh, you used this verse also when you uh, were a non-Christian, like I did. Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrites, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye." Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Anyone uh, know that verse? Have heard that verse? Have used that verse, or had a friend use that verse to tell you something? No one. Three people. Okay, maybe I was okay. Some of you, yes. Uh, This is a wildly popular verse, uh, especially with non Christians. You, I've even, I've, uh, yeah, it's just used very prolifically and. Let me give us a little bit of background as we step into this so we understand what Jesus has been doing, what he's been unpacking in the Sermon on the Mount as we approach this. Our Lord Jesus has touched on all of the areas of the believer's life. Like all of the Aries, he's uncovering every stone of the believer's life. And this is this marvelous, wonderful sermon that he has been preaching. And we've seen Jesus at every single turn as he gets to our hearts. He began with our perspective on ourselves, with the Beatitudes, where he told us, blessed is the poor in spirit, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are those that mourn. He, this introspective self he has us look at. And then he gives us this perspective or what our perspective as believers in this new kingdom should be with the world. And he remember what he says? He says, we're to be salt and we're to be light. He gives us this perspective. that We're to be salt and light. And then he gives us the perspective on God's word where he's talking about the law and the fact that it's immutable, that it's unchanging, that nothing will be removed from it. Not one dot or iota has he come to remove, but yet Jesus has come to fulfill them. He gave us our perspective on the moral law or on our holiness, and he discussed that we're not only to just have external convictions about the moral law, but internal, that they're to affect and change our hearts, right? Right? He, Jesus discussed our religious activity in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about giving, he talks about fasting, and he talked about praying. He taught us to do all of these things in this new kingdom way. Uh, last week, he talked about, that we looked at last week, he talked about our perspective on money and possessions and material goods or our treasure, that which we treasure, So he's been uncovering like every single aspect of our lives in the Sermon on the Mount, this incredible sermon. And now he comes to a text that deals with our relationships to other people, right? So he talked about our relationship to ourselves, to God, to his word, to our world, to our actions, to our religious activity, to our relations on morality and holiness, what God wants. And now he turns to human relationships, How do we now interact with each other? Jesus is leaving no stone unturned as he preaches through the Sermon on the Mount. It's a wonderful, wonderful sermon. And this portion is intensely practical as he addresses one of these most important aspects of Christian behavior. Now, like I said, everyone seems to kind of know this verse, especially uh, a non-Christian. And this verse tends to pop up quite frequently, right, when uh, a Christian is confronting sin in someone else's life, right? This, this is when this verse tends to pop up and t- when, when we tend to want to use it, right? It's like, well, the Bible says don't judge. The Bible says don't judge. The Bible says don't judge, Right? People may have never heard of John 3.16, but they've heard of this phrase, judge not lest you be judged. Right, and It comes up all the time, all the time. And this scripture is quoted so often, even especially when the church, uh, as, as an institution, makes a stand on God's moral law, on his holiness, what he's calling his people to and toward. A lot of times this verse gets thrown out, well, you shouldn't judge, you shouldn't judge other people. We live in a culture today, right now, that we find ourselves in, whose ethic is this. This is, the, this is the ethic of our culture. I have the right to do whatever I please, and you don't have the right to tell me that I shouldn't. That's, that's just kind of how we operate. You do your thing, I do my thing, just leave me alone, All right? That's the mantra of the day. Now, I was a student pastor uh, about 12 years ago, and this was a very common occurrence uh, in student ministry. This is what happened maybe, I don't know, once, once or twice a month at least. Uh, <clears throat> a mother would walk into my office. She's very upset. She's distraught. Her junior or senior uh, has started hanging out in the wrong crowd. She's very concerned about him or her. Uh, she tells me all the things that they've caught him doing. He's been getting into partying. He's hanging out with the wrong group of people. Him and his girlfriend are traveling down roads that we don't want them to travel down. Uh, She's distraught. She's like, well, I don't know what to do. I've been talking to him. I've been praying. And inevitably, it goes like this. Will you please meet with my son? Will you please talk to my son? Please, I need someone to talk to him. Will you please just step in and reinforce these, all the things I've been telling him. He'll hear it differently from you. He might think you're a little bit cooler, right? And I kind of always have to frame it. I said, well, yes, of course, I'd love to meet with your son. I'd love to uh, talk to him uh, about all that's going on in his life. But I would just want you to know that bringing your son along in this manner is kind of like them going to see the principal, right? A lot of times these are don't go that well. If you just drag them kicking and screaming, they're just going to be walled off, and they'll just kind of serve their time and go on their happy way, right? This is kind of how these tended to go, especially if I didn't have a longstanding relationship with that individual. And, uh, but I said, of course, if he's willing to meet, I'd love to sit down and meet with him. And uh, so his mother did drag him in by the ear into my office, sat him down, plopped him down, and said, here you go. You've got an hour, right? And she left and said, I'll be back in an hour. And uh, I look at the student, and I just, my first question is usually like this, because they're usually sitting down like, kind of like how some of y'all sit in church and look at me, like, go ahead do it like this. But what do you want? What do you have to say? And I say, hey, what, why are you so angry? You know, what's, what's making you so angry? Who are you mad at? And it's like almost immediately, well, I'm mad at my mother, right? It's like usually kind of, it, maybe it's really quickly like that, or maybe after a little bit of conversation, it gets down to, I'm just so mad at my mom. Well, why? Why, why are you so mad at her? Right? Well, because she's ruining my life, right? Well, and being the good counselor I was, you know, 12 years ago, as starting out in ministry. Well, why is she ruining your life? I just know you're supposed to ask a lot of why questions in this moment, right? Well, she's not letting me do any of the stuff I want to do. And then she's jamming all this religious stuff down my throat. Oh, okay. Um, once again, just pro-counselor move. Well, why does that make you so angry? Right? This is, this is what my, my counselor does with me. So I know this is what you're supposed to do. Well, then he, inevitably, it always goes something like this in these moments, And he says, well, I believe everyone has the right to just do what what they want, to do their own thing. She's interfering with what I wanna do. And I don't believe some of the stuff that she's telling me, so she should just let me do what I wanna do. And I always go, well, if that's the case, why on earth are you angry at your mother? And he would look at me like, I just told you, what do you mean? Why would I be angry at my mother? What are you talking about? And I'd always look at them, and hopefully they'd crack a smile. And I'd say, well, what if your mother's thing, what she wants to do, is jam religious stuff down your throat? What if that's her thing? Why would you be mad at her? She's just doing her thing. You just want to do your thing. With that ethic, you can't really be mad at her. Right? And usually they would sometimes chuckle, sometimes not. But... um, but you make that point. I make that point because this is the world we live in. It's this relativistic world where we don't really understand. We would get mad at someone for telling us what they think, but they, on the flip side, said, you're not allowed to do that, and I get mad if you tell me that because everyone should do their own thing. Well, what if that's it's just this round and round and round we go? So how does it solve anything? So by that ethic, there's no complaint whatsoever that these students would come into my office with. It's just this inconsistent relativism that is so pervasive in our world today. It's what sparks Facebook conversations that never end. Never end, right? Judge not. It's one of the most popular verses in our culture because it seems to fit our culture's most basic assumptions that religion is private and morality is relative, meaning you can't tell me what to do, and I won't tell you what to do, so I'm just going to do what I want, whatever makes me happy. That's the law of our day. That's what we love today. That's, it's like, <coughs> it's almost like Coke versus Dr. Pepper, because Coke and Pepsi is not even really a thing, right? So Coke versus Dr. Pepper, it's just a preference thing in people's mind, it's just a, simply a preference thing. So people use this verse as a deflective weapon that whatever someone says, we can say, well, judge not, because the Bible says you shouldn't judge me. So my, it's my preferences that reign supreme. I've heard Bill Maher quote this very verse. He says, who are you to say that's wrong? Doesn't the Bible say judge not? It's all over the place. So this passage is one of the least understood portions in the scripture. So if judge not, lest you be judged, is music to the modern ears, the very next thing that Jesus says right after that is like the polar opposite. It just seems to not even fit with what he's saying because it's very abrasive. He goes on right after that and he says, well, don't give dogs what is holy and don't throw your pearls before swine lest they trample underfoot and turn and attack you. So Jesus in these verses basically just refers to some people as pigs and dogs. It's like, whoa, that doesn't sound like, it's, just, it's, it's abrasive language right after judge not, right? So in one passage, he says, don't judge and be careful because some of your friends and maybe some of you are pigs and dogs. Jesus, wh- what are you talking about? What does all of this mean? Well, this morning, we're gonna see if we can make a little bit of sense of this, right? If this is so pervasive in our culture and this verse is used improperly, what is it that Jesus is actually trying to teach us in this sermon that's describing our relationships in light of the kingdom of God? What does he mean by judging? Well, he can't mean that you never tell someone that they're wrong. Because Jesus spent a lot of his ministry doing just that. So we know that can't be what he means. In fact, a few verses after this, in chapter 7, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus looks at the same group of people and he says, Enter the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. So like just a few verses later, he says, Wide is the path of destruction, and narrow is the way that leads to life. And he says, very few people find it. So he can't mean that you're not supposed to call out sin and what is evil, because he literally just did it a few verses after that. He says, oh, there's a lot of people that are just going to try to find their own way, and that way leads to destruction. The narrow path is the way that leads to life, and few find it. That doesn't sound like a, hey, whatever you want to do is fine. Just go for it. Follow your heart. Right? In fact, this is how Jesus characterized his entire life in John 7, 7. He's, <laughs> he's looking at his disciples. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify, it, I testify about it that its works are evil. So this is what he said. He's like, guys, don't worry. The world can't hate you, but it's going to hate me because I testify about the world's evil. So he's clearly calling out that which is evil and wrong in his ministry. It doesn't sound like a guy that says, whoa, who am I to correct? You kind of just do your thing, I'll do mine. And Jesus' followers would do the same thing. John the Baptist actually lost his head as a result of calling out Herod for sexual sin, for calling out evil. The Apostle Paul says we are to rebuke works of darkness or to push back darkness against it with the light of Christ. So it can't mean you don't tell people they're wrong. So what does it mean? Here's a big idea for us. Here's a big general idea for us. Judging is taking a position against someone and then totally dismissing them as a person, condemning them, writing them off. Just making a judgment based on something, condemning that person, and just moving on. John 3.17 says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Because not condemning does not mean not telling the truth. It's about casting a person off after you tell them the truth. It's that person that stands on their throne, pronounces their judgment, and then walks away. That's a judgmental person that Jesus is talking about. I'm done with you. I told you the truth. You're never gonna get it. I'm out of here. After telling the truth of our position, that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, that we once walked according to the patterns of our flesh, but Christ came and died for us, what did Christ do for us after telling us the truth of our situation? He came near to us. He entered in. He came right next to us. He gave us his very spirit. Jesus brought us close. That's the gospel. Jesus doesn't just pronounce a condemnation and walk away. Jesus tells us the truth of our estate, tells us the reality of the error of our thoughts and what we're doing and how we're operating and how we've wronged maybe other people, but then he moves in close with his great grace to change our hearts and minds that we might look like sons and daughters of the king. He made sinners his friends. That's what Jesus did. The verse right before John 3.17 is of course John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, who died for us, right? He told us the truth, that we were far from God, and that he made us his friends by laying his life down for us. That's what Jesus did. Secondly, Another idea about this idea of judging others and what I think Jesus is getting at, judging other people on your throne looking down, not entering in with them, reflects extreme ignorance of our own sinfulness. Judging others reflects an extreme ignorance of our own sinfulness. When Jesus talks about taking the speck out of your neighbor's eye, he says, "Oh, by the way, you have a tree like protruding out of your face, right?" He's a carpenter, so you would imagine he's around a lot of dust, specks of dust, and he deals with boards and logs. And he's making uh, this. Obviously, isn't the reality, but he's making a point here. He's like a little speck of dust, a little like a little bit of sawdust. You love to go brush off your your buddies. Oh, here, hold on a second, you're not. You, you don't got it right. But you have a log protruding out of your face, right? He's like, you're not seeing clearly. What's he getting at here? Hypocrisy. He's getting at hypocrisy. And sure, he's he's making the point that we shouldn't um, berate people for the very things we're guilty of. It's kind of like, you know, like big big things, obvious things like, maybe the the guy that lectures his community group about not tithing while all the while cheating on his taxes, right? That's just like pure hypocrisy. It's like one thing's coming out of his mouth over here and then behind the scenes, he's doing the exact opposite of what he's teaching. That's that's clear. Jesus is obviously getting at that point. But I think it's even more subtle than this. It's even more subtle than this. I've heard it said, that if you, this is this is funny. If you smell manure in every room you walk into, it's probably because it's on the bottom of your shoes. <laughs> I like that. It's very true. You're like, hey, well, this is wrong with this. This this is not right. This is gross. It's like you may check your shoes. You may be the part the problem, right? I think this is what Jesus is getting at. It's subtle, meaning our critical spirits, our judgmental selves, our self-righteous tone that we're quick to judge, we're first to cast the first stone. So yes, he's saying don't be a blatant hypocrite, but I think Jesus is getting at way more than that here. I think he's confronting you and I for failing to grapple with our own sinfulness We are so quick to see everyone else's faults and flaws and sins, but we don't want to deal with ours. This is what Jesus is getting at. Yes, hypocrisy, but it's more subtle than that. Right? (coughs) Notice Jesus here. This is, I find this troubling, yet amusing, Jesus assumes the log is in our eye. It's not if, it's there. He just assumes that it's there. So just know that when you go to correct someone, you've got stuff that you're dealing with too. So make sure your heart is right first. Don't come with a critical, judgmental, I sit on my iron throne and I judge all these other people. Make sure your heart is right before you come. Christian doctrine teaches that we are completely and totally saturated with sin. Jesus says the human heart is depraved. It's like a polluted well. Whenever you go to it and draw from it, it's always going to be polluted. Now, a lot of us in Jesus' ministry, he goes and confronts this, especially with the Pharisees. We've learned to cover it up. We learn to make it pretty. Culturally, we understand that if we kind of look like this and we do these things, we can cover up those dark parts of our hearts that we don't like to talk about, that we don't like to admit that are there, that we don't like to confront because it looks like a big log sticking out of our head, but we've dressed it up with some Christmas lights and made it look pretty, right? And so it's like, oh, this little thing, that's not a big deal. Everyone's got that, right? We've learned to kind of Febreze it over, really smelly, but if, as long as we put enough masking scent over it, no one will notice. John Owen, <coughs> the old theologian, said the seed of every sin is in every heart. That's a, The seed of every sin is in every heart. We are not above any sin. Every sin. So when I'm talking to someone who's living in sin, who's dabbling in sin, who's thinking about running into something that's sinful or is an error, I should be painfully aware that I'm infected with the very same sinful stuff that they are. It is pervasive in me too. I haven't graduated from it. I'm not immune to it. The same stuff is in me. Verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Now, here's a question I want to ask us this morning. What pronouncement was given to you in Jesus? The great judge, the one that, ha- the one that can look at you and pronounce a judgment. What judgment did he give to you, those that came to Jesus? Jesus the judgment he pronounced on us was mercy. He pronounced mercy in the face of our sinfulness. Shouldn't that affect how I approach others that are struggling? Shouldn't that inform my heart when I walk up to a brother or sister who is struggling in sin, knowing that Jesus, my king, pronounced mercy on me when I was in sin? After telling the truth, Jesus brought me close. That should change how we approach others. Catch this the antidote to judging, the antidote to being critical, the antidotes to sitting on our iron throne and proclaiming judgment on those around us is to remember the gospel. It's to remember the gospel that Jesus pronounced on our sick and depraved hearts mercy and grace to the undeserving he brought that which was far off near he told us the truth but he didn't leave us in it he came in and then brought us near that's how jesus did it for us so i'm gonna get real practical the rest of the time and we're almost done how did we know if we're a judgmental person no one thinks they are, or maybe you do if it's like really obvious. I don't know, but no, no one kind of like, no one calls me up and says, hey, can you really help me? I'm really judgmental, and I'm, I need I'm struggling with that, right? It's because we, we mask it, we make it look pretty. So how do we know? Like, how do we know this has crept into our hearts and into our minds and into our lives? You know, when you, you know you struggle with a judgmental, critical spirit toward your brothers and sisters in Christ when you are more enraged at someone else's sin than you are embarrassed of your own. When you're more furious about someone else's sin than you are embarrassed or repentant of your own sin. Whose sin are you ticked off at right now? Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's a German theologian, uh, anti-Nazi advocate, pastor. Uh, He wrote some wonderful books, Cost of Discipleship. He wrote another one called Life Together, the prayer book of the church. And he kind of marks three stages of spiritual maturity for the church. And I think these are wonderful. He said the first stage is this. uh, When you are disgusted at everyone else's sin in the church... Some of us are there right now, right? You think, oh, what a bunch of hypocrites they are. They don't get it. You pass judgment on everyone. You kind of see from a higher perspective than these people do. I wish they would just get it like me. You point fingers at the problems you observe. How could these people do this or that? I can't believe these people. Bonhoeffer calls that person a spiritual infant. And uh, I think we've all been there or maybe we're currently there. The second stage, he says, is that when you become more disgusted at your own sin than at everyone else's, you're more aware of your own hypocrisy than anyone else's in the church, and you begin to say with Paul, I am the chief of all sinners. Whew. Lord, thank you for saving me by your great mercy. I'm the worst of anyone. And I can't believe, God, that you chose in your providence to send to Jesus and cover me, a sinner, with your blood and call me a son or daughter of the Most High. Not that other people's sin goes away, but you begin to see your heart for what it really is, and you begin to realize your great, great need for the gospel of grace. And you run to it time and time and time again. And at that point, Bonhoeffer says, "You're ready for stage three, that you re-enter the church this time, not as a Pharisee and not as a critic, but as an actual Christian, a Christian who has received unending streams of mercy and grace, and you are now ready to give it away. Rather than criticism and judgment, you're ready to just give the great grace of our Lord Jesus to desperate people that need him, just like you and I. In the gospel, we know that we have been and received great grace. And now we can finally give it away. We don't have to give away criticism. We don't have to give away um, judgment. We can tell the truth, yes. But we can come with great grace and mercy because that's how Jesus has dealt with us. So, you know you struggle with a judgmental, critical spirit when you become more enraged at someone else's sin than you are repentant or embarrassed of your own. So, even those that are married in this room, in your marriage, are you more enraged with your spouse's sin or your own? This is pervasive. This goes deep. The second maybe practical sign that you struggle or you have a judgmental, critical spirit is that you fail to forgive. You're saying, I'm not gonna let you off the hook for what you did, even though I know God and Christ Jesus has forgiven me. I'm just gonna hold on to this. I'm gonna hang it over your head. Another way that we judge is that we gossip. Like, well, how is that judging? Well, this is the worst kind of judgment because they can't even defend themselves because they're not around. And you maybe gather a group of people and we in the South, we like to mask even our gossip in the form of prayer requests, Lord, I just really need to pray for Sean. He just clearly doesn't get it and he's really hurting and struggling and though I don't, I just, his, his attitude and his, whatever, right? We, we tend to, we love to do that. Or we just blatantly say something and if you tack on bless his heart at the end, it sort of just covers it. <laughs> oh, Susie, she's just, whatever, whatever you wanna say, bless her heart. You're like, you just insulted that person to like no end. You can't just say bless her heart at the end of it. It doesn't take away what you've just said, right? So we can gossip and it puts us on the throne and we get to disseminate down where we think people have failed and where we think that they haven't met the mark. We clearly have though. Another way we can see if we have this judgmental spirit that I think Jesus is talking about is when we refuse to receive criticism. This is another way. And you're like, wait, what? How does that mean you're judgmental? Well, when we understand the gospel, uh, and we, we should be the very last people on planet Earth that are surprised that we have faults. Like, knowing the gospel, knowing that God has saved a wretch like me, a heart that has been polluted, that I've run from God, uh, the the better part of this day, right, or the last five, whatever, and if someone comes and says, hey, I've noticed this, we can receive it because we can say, you know, yeah, I think you're right. Gosh, if you should know about all these other things too. I mean, I don't have it all. These are all the other places I don't have it together. But thank goodness for Jesus, we should be able to receive it. But if our hearts are closed off and we won't receive it and we're sitting up on our throne, it's another sense of a judgmental spirit. You can't come in and tell me where I'm right or wrong. I'm the only one that does the criticism around here. I'm the only one that sees it, right? And lastly, I think, we know we struggle with this if we just write people off as hopeless. That we um, we look at a situation, we look at a person, we say, "Forget them; they clearly don't get it. They never will." See you later. Um, Jesus is not like that at all, nor has he ever been. We worship and serve a Savior that raises the dead church. Amen? He looks into hopeless situations and he does not criticize. He does not condemn but he brings light and hope and peace and he enters in and he says, come forth sleeper. Wake up. There's goodness. There's hope. There's grace found in our Lord Jesus. Wake up. Church, who in your life have you written off as too far gone? Jesus did not look at you and say that. He acted on your behalf. The gospel is a gospel of mercy and grace for the undeserving. John 1.14 describes Jesus as being full, full, not lacking in grace and in truth. Grace and truth, that's the gospel. I think that truth without grace is judgmental fundamentalism. And if you uh, read certain blogs, you saw a pastor that I think exemplified some of that even this week in a news clip that was hard to listen to and was very unkind and very ungracious and very lacking in grace. Grace. I think grace without truth is liberal sentimentality. It's just like, just let's all just do what we want and have warm fuzzies and sing kumbaya and everyone's all roads lead to one and we'll all get there eventually. So let's skip into the end of the rainbow. That's not what Jesus was about. Jesus was full, not lacking in grace and in truth. That's the gospel. Grace and truth, grace and truth. Now, lastly, I wish I didn't have to close with this part, but Jesus has it in there. I wish we could have prayed right there. He says, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Here's the point I want to make about this. What's Jesus talking about here? Jesus just got done talking about what your greatest treasure is right before this, right? That, that being a child of the kingdom of God that being in God's kingdom, that the gospel is our greatest treasure, this grace and mercy that God has invaded our lives is what has profoundly changed us. This is the pearl, this is the treasure, this is that which is holy. He made that which was unholy holy, so this is the most precious thing to you. And so last week we talked about what is your treasure There your heart will be also. So this is our treasure, the gospel of grace, what God has done, our salvation, that which he's done for us. And we want more people to get that. And we don't bring our judgmental critical spirit, but we bring grace and mercy and truth. And Jesus is reminding us that he's assuming that we're going to be sharing this great good news with more and more and more and more people that are desperate for it, that are longing for it, that are hungry for the truth of the gospel. And he says, when you're doing that, ask. As you're doing that, he says there's going to be some that just don't want it. There's going to be some that they're just going to trample it under their feet and they're not going to view it as that which is most precious like you do because God has changed your heart and mind. So there's some that are in fact going to be antagonistic against it and they're going to want to turn and come after you for even trying to give them that which you find so precious and so holy. So he's just warning us. He's saying this is, this is a natural byproduct in the life of the believer that when you have that which is most precious to you, we live in a world that they're not going to find this precious at times. And he's assuming that you're continuing wanting to give it, give it away, give it away, give it away, and that's a good thing. But he's just reminding us, he's saying, listen, if they trample and they try to come after you, you don't have to just keep giving and keep giving and keep giving. There's some relationships that are damaging and that are gonna be harmful as you are sharing the good news of the gospel of grace. So be careful. Just be careful in that. So you don't come at it judgmental. You don't come at it as a critic. You come at it as this gospel of grace, that which Jesus has done is the most precious thing to me and I wanna give it away. And that's a good thing. But Jesus says, just not everyone is going to value that. Just know that's the world we live in. Not everyone is going to hold that up as precious like you do. And that's the reality of the fallen world we find ourselves in. But he says, still go. Hold it up. Cherish it. It's your treasure. It's your greatest hope. Let's pray together, church. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. God, I pray for us as a church that you would help us by your gospel, by your good news, that we would believe it. Um, Lord, that you would help remind us, Lord, that the judgment you pronounced on us was mercy, not condemnation, that you came and you saved us, that which was lost, that which was far from you, God, you made alive and gave life and gave a family and gave hope and you changed our dark hearts and gave us the light of the world instead. And so, God, I pray that when we interact with one another, that we wouldn't come with critical spirits, but we would come as children who have received great mercy and grace and we're just ready to give it away. God, do that work in, in and through us. We need your help. We've got a long way to go. But thank you that you're faithful. Thank you that you're with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, will stand and sing one more song.